Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. Michael and I will share with you the wisdom of the ancient Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic Rachma. Michael is the author of Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, for more information on Michael or myself or forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, your co-hosts, the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is Tuesday, July the 12th, 2016. And their calling number is 646-200-4169. Press 1, and that puts you in queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and your questions because that makes this your show. And I'm going to mute your phone again, Michael. Um, Okay, so we have some changes to our summer season. If you haven't uh, been on the website, you can go to whyagain.org, click on Heartland, click on Schedules, and it will bring it up. Uh, We begin with our Food, Fun, and Forgiveness on August the 1st to August the 10th, and that's the economy program where we do work projects during the day, and then we have evening classes, workshops, still point breathing. And then we begin with the nine-day Why Is This Happening to Me Again, August the 14th to the 22nd followed by a three-day personal code evaluation training, August 25th through 27th, and then 16-day laws of living and still point breathing, which is August the 29th through September 13th. All the others that are listed in our bulletin, of course the website's been changed, but uh, if you have one of our bulletins, then uh, those are the ones that have changed. All the rest of them have been canceled. And so... If you're interested in that, right now we're running that if you go ahead and sign up, that you get all 15 DVDs with your down payment, your deposit to hold your space. So we would love to have you join us this summer. And I'm still talking to Michelle. It's not finalized yet, but it looks like maybe the weekend of September, The I'm opening my calendar, excuse me, September the, no, September the 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th that we're looking at doing um, a four-day or a three-day healing the whole woman. So that's not been finalized yet, but we're working on that. So if you're interested, uh, please get in touch with us. My email is Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at org. And I think I hear Michael. So welcome, Michael. Maybe I did. You do hear me. I'm here. Okay. I'm here. I'm here. And uh, and that's right. I was I was thinking that uh, you'd shift it to October, but it is going to be probably the latter part of September. So awesome. Lots of good things happening. Lots of crazy things happening in the world too. And it's definitely time for a wake up. Definitely time to uh, to be looking into the programmed unconsciousness of our culture and waking up individually and collectively while there is the opportunity to do so. You know, one of the things that it takes in order to change a dynamic within oneself or a dynamic within the world is uh, awareness. And so we're here to bring awareness. We're here to bring awakening. We're here to support every mind, heart, and being on planet Earth functioning as a true human being. And, of course, what's our definition of a human being? How do, we, how do we get to that? How do you put human life into words? You don't. You can't. It's not possible. But if you hold a newborn child, you know exactly what a human life is. 
It is that awesome, sweet presence of love. And when we wake up to the truth of who we are, then we get to experience ourselves as human beings, as the presence of love. And while many people approach this topic with futility, frustration, and hopelessness, the reason for that is that they haven't had effective tools. You know, people will say, well, you know, I've tried everything. I've tried everything the culture's got to offer. Mm. Well, it's only recently that the true offering of forgiveness that was provided 2,000 years ago from the first century Aramaic has been available in this culture. It has been disappeared for almost 2,000 years. So there's one thing I know you haven't tried yet if you're saying, but it can't be done. Of course, it can't be done if you don't have the tools. You know, if I've got to rebuild the engine on my car and all I've got are some old pliers and my fingers, I'm going to say an engine can't be rebuilt. But if somebody gives me the tools with which to rebuild an engine, I can do it in precisely the same way. If what you've got is a mindset of a culture based in hostility, fear, hopelessness, guilt, rage, and war, and think that thinks that murder on a mass scale is an okay thing to do, which sadly, I mean, you look at the trillions that have been spent by the military in overseas ventures in the last decade, and I'm talking about trillions, then... Obviously, the mindset of the culture is, well, that's okay. And, and if you've got that mindset, then, of course, you don't have the tools with which to bring correction. It's like working on the engine with your old pair of pliers and your fingers. You can't do it. Take this tool of forgiveness. Know what a human life is and make it your life's purpose to be restored to human life. Hold a newborn child if you don't know what a human life is. Just hold the newborn and notice that your descriptor for the essence of the newborn is going to be some variation on the theme of love. They'll be the words that you use to describe the newborn, the essence of human life. We come into the world and the world puts its thumbprints on us. And the last thing most people want to do is face what's in those thumbprints and clean them out. And so people hobble along with coping skills well we'll teach you how to cope with your sadness or your grief or your rage or your loss we've got a drug that'll stop you from feeling it so you'll feel better but that's that's like pliers and and fingers trying to rebuild an engine you can't do it this man yeshua 2000 years ago had a set of tools and he said here's how you rebuild a life and the first order of business is first century aramaic forgiveness when you think forgiveness, think the word remove rather than I'm going to let you off the hook. That's just a, the weak, cheap copy of forgiveness that our culture has worked with and taught us that that's actually forgiveness. And letting somebody else or yourself off the hook for your inadequacies or theirs will do nothing to heal your life. It's nothing to do with forgiveness. It's pardoning. It's a nice thing to do. It can make things better. But if you want real healing... What you need is a precise precision tool with which to go into the places in yourself where love has not touched and bring those places to the space where they can be touched by love. And that's precisely what first century Aramaic forgiveness does. So we're here to support those tools becoming available on as broad and as wide a scale as we possibly can, every mind, heart, and being on the planet. That's why when we're on the road six to ten months of the year, we pay our own expenses. Our workshops are free. We do this radio show, you know, five days a week. You'll notice we don't have sponsors. We don't have somebody who pays us to do it. We pay to do it, and we're delighted to because it gives us the opportunity to support people in taking these tools and really, truly putting them to work in their lives. And so that's what we're here to do and to share with you. And we didn't get to talk to Dr. Tim yesterday, so if the young man is there, Jeannie, let's say hello and see what Dr. Tim has to share. He is, and he's on. I'm here. Awesome. How are you, sir? Fabulous. What's exciting in your world? 
everything, all things, um, lots going on. Lots of people working with the tools. Somebody um, earlier today recognizing the pattern of blaming others right in the middle of a righteous declaration of how he was right and and the light bulb went on. So it's just wonderful to see how um, as you plant the seeds they can blossom and come to fruition at any time. I had... um, a very full day of patience yesterday and one of the themes that was coming up yesterday was the idea of trying to change one's behavior in order to control or avoid a negative emotional reaction from someone else and one of the primary problems with really intense anxiety that can develop into obsessive compulsive behavior that's what they call it where people feel compelled to do things over and over again despite the fact that their logical mind might tell them you know you've already turned off the stove you don't have to go home and check it for the 17th time but one of the problems that develops when we know or care about somebody who has that problem is people have a tendency to get involved in or invested in behaviors to try and help soothe the person who has the intense anxiety or feels the compulsion to do something repetitively. And that's one of the biggest traps and leads to one of the most convoluted, distorted patterns of disruption and pain in people's lives and relationships. And so, you know, what one of the things I appreciate most about this work is the absolute coming back to the bedrock again and again observation that if I'm feeling it in me, no matter how many people around me are also feeling it and projecting it on me, if I turn my focus to my internal process and I do the cleanup work, remove the garbage in my bags, what is in my store of pain, sadness, fear, desperation, etc., I'm restored to an awareness of my true nature as love and my experience of life in that moment gets transformed. And that's all I need to worry about. Um, Shelley called in sometime last week when you weren't here and he talked about somebody, he was all of a sudden overcome with a physical sensation of nausea and sickness and and he went to check his blood pressure, and it was fine. And then he found out that somebody near him had tried to commit suicide. And he was wondering if he could have picked up on the energy of that person, and that resulted in his feeling so upset. And I said, well, it's entirely possible you can pick up on the energy. And if so, the thing to do would be to look inside yourself and remove, if you have any left, of the anger of desperation overwhelm, depression, bitterness. And as you do, you'll be able to be around people who are suicidal and not have all of this nausea stirred up in you, not have all of this desperation stirred up in you, and rather being able to hold the place of love and the energy of compassion for them and extend that to them. So that's my offering for today. It's it's a, a very difficult thing for most of us to do when we're raised in a culture that says, you made me angry, you hurt my feelings, change this behavior so I'll feel better. And yet it's the only thing that will offer liberty to all parties involved. And that is, if I learn to focus on what's going on inside me and take full responsibility for what I'm feeling and turn my focus of awareness to how I'm creating the upset and then apply the tools, and then I move through it. So that's my offering for today, Personal Responsibility 101. Fabulous. 
And you just stirred so many things. I don't know if I'll be able to keep them all in my brain to keep up with it. So many things just uh, popped as you were speaking there, one of them being the difference between blaming, as you started out talking about, and holding people accountable, that, that when people are actually off base in their behavior, it's perfectly appropriate to hold them accountable. And if I can't hold them accountable out of a connected space of love, then that's my work. You know, if I'm enraged, I want, I want to get even with you. I'm not holding people accountable. I'm getting even. I'm doing something that's non-human. Whereas when I can do my work, if I've got frustration or sadness or anger or pain around something, that I can do my work. And I don't need to wait until I've fully completed my work in order to hold somebody accountable. I just need to make sure I hold myself accountable for staying connected to love as I step forward and, and hold someone in that space of, you know, your behavior was off base. We need to tell the truth about it. And it's time for that to be confronted and dealt with. It's a, there's a, such a big difference and there's so much unconsciousness from that world, as you say, of we've all been raised in the one that says, you made me mad, you made me sad, you made me afraid. And to clean up that unconsciousness and come forward with clarity and purity in that accountability game is, is quite a challenge to develop those skills. It's huge. But it has to start somewhere, and uh, and that's the that's what we're holding the space for is for people to take the tools to start to develop that clarity of mind and to do the work required to be able to stand in the face of authority or someone who's off base and bring correction to that situation while bringing accountability to the person who's off base. I know for me, one of my early mentors, I had the blessing of, uh, of getting to be in the space of a man named Judge Asadi Kelly, who was probably the closest thing to a saint I've ever seen. He worked in Albany, Georgia, uh, pretty tough, well, probably one of the toughest towns I've ever been in. And uh, in terms of heavy-duty energy, the only place when I think about that that um, had a more heavy-duty energy when I went in to do work was Rikers Prison in New York. That was like really brought a lot of stuff up for me. But next to that was Albany, Georgia, and working in the, the jail system there. But Judge Kelly, who'd been in charge of the whole prison system for the state of Georgia and was a Superior Court judge, would take the person who committed the most heinous crime and say, you know, I love you like a brother, but you can't do that in my town. You know, the townsfolk took up a collection and this is what he actually used to say. The townsfolk took up a collection and built a building with iron bars on it, and they asked me to decide who's safe in town and who isn't. And you're not. Your behavior proves to me that you're not safe to be in my community. I love you. I love my community more. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sentence you to life in prison. And it's not to punish you. It's to hold you accountable for your behavior. And by the way, if you'd like to heal, if you'd like to step into recovering the truth of your being, of course, he wouldn't say it that way necessarily. That's my words. But, but in essence, he would offer them. And we, we actually created the Laws of Living course out of a request from Judge Assidy Kelly. That's how Laws of Living was originally created. And we cut recidivism in the prisons by 90%. And I'll tell you, there were a lot of heavy-duty moments where you're standing in front of a guy who's triple your size and you know he's killed six people. And you hold him accountable for his vicious words towards somebody else. It's pretty heavy duty to stand in that space and yet to watch how when that person is held accountable with love present, how the opening occurs. And in every case, they go right back to the three-year-old that just wanted, you know, dad's love and caring or mom's gentleness or whatever that in each case there's always that underlying it and so accountability also includes the process of healing and to create systems that can can comprehend and embrace on that large level the insanity that has run our planet for so long is a huge project and I, for one, am sure glad, Dr. Tim, you're on the team to support us and help us to do that, because that's what we're doing, along with, of course, many other people who are working in that direction. So that's one of the first things that comes up as a result of your sharing. Any thoughts there before I go on with the second thought? Well, let's hear the second one. Oh, okay. Well, 
it, it's kind of interesting, our, our timing here, we're packing up in Florida, getting ready to go back to Heartland for the uh, summer intensives. And just before we came down here, we had, uh, I had found on eBay or something a set of six years of um, DVDs of a TV series called Mr. Monk, which we had watched once or twice. And it's kind of, it's kind of heartwarming, touching, um, saddening, you know, it goes through many emotions. And, um, and it just so happened last night we watched the last in that series. And it was kind of interesting because Mr. Monk is a guy who's, a, you know, like the world-famous detective. And his wife is murdered in a, a car explosion. And so he goes into this OCD state. I mean, he's, I mean, it's hilarious the way this guy plays it. He's really hilarious that he plays this OCD detective who, you know, if he's walking down the street, he has to touch every lamppost and every parking meter. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny, but at the same time, it's got some very touching um, episodes in it. And so the completion point, you know, and the, the big thing is that, He's trying to solve his wife's murder, and it's been 12 years. The, the TV series is actually it goes over a period of six years. And so we watched the sixth year, the end of it last night, and all of a sudden he's poisoned, and it looks like he's going to die. And his big regret is he has not um, solved his wife's murder. And as he's facing his imminent death, he decides that, he's going to open the last gift that his wife gave him kind of an interesting metaphor. Uh, and it flashes back to, uh, Christmas time and he comes home all happy and cheery and his wife's there and she gives him a big hug and there's a gift under the tree. And he's, Oh, is this for me, sweetheart? And she's like, yes, but you can't open it till Christmas. And, and you can see that, you know, there's some trepidation in her. as She, she says this to him. So he finally puts it back down and, you know, a couple of days later, she's murdered. And he just can't bring himself in his OCD state to open this gift. He's just like, you know, I'm just going to cherish this beautiful wrapped package. Well, as he's getting ready to face his own imminent death from being poisoned, he decides, well, it's time for me to open the gift. And the thing he would not open is a tape that she had made explaining some of her dark history and something that had happened and that she thought that she might be in trouble. And so she was leaving this under the tree. And if nothing happened, she would replace it with a, a watch, you know, something that he wanted. Otherwise she'd leave this. And if she was dead, then he'd open it. And, well, finally, after 12 years, he opens this and there's the DVD and explains the whole thing that's happening and how she's being murdered. And so he, the, the very thing that he didn't want to open in his life was the thing that had his most cherished gift. And that's, a, I think, a very powerful metaphor for people who don't want to become conscious, people who don't want to become aware, people who don't want to look and deal with what's inside of themselves. And yet it is, as we've said in many, many occasions, that when we can bring the part of us that we keep in hiding, the part that we keep wrapped up and don't want to look at, forward in the presence of love and i know tim you've seen this happen a thousand times in your work as we have and we've talked about it many times it's just the the poignant pain and beauty of those moments where the energetic dynamics come together just right so that that which maybe somebody's been hiding from themselves literally their whole lives and perhaps not even just their lives, but generations have hidden that dynamic that when that part of them is opened and brought to light and brought forward in the presence of love, the transformation that takes place is always absolutely monumental. And when that happens, I've seen relationships healed it, you could say you would say could never be healed. I've seen people literally walk away from one of those events and cancer disappear and you know, a million different things change, back pain, trauma, just every kind of thing you can imagine. And so the the willingness to be confronted and of course there's that old story about John the Baptist, that's another thing that kind of came into the fray as you were talking to him. Thank you for all that that stimulating input. But 
you know, if you remember John the Baptist, they called him the raving maniac in the desert. He was the forerunner of the Christ. And when you realize the word Christ is not a religious word, and it's not the name of a man, it literally means a direct channel open to love to the creator. And so when one is in that mind, then one becomes the, the mind of Christ becomes available to them, literally, not in a religious sense, but in a very real sense, that awesome, pure, powerful presence of love comes into the form. And that's where healing occurs. And the John the Baptist was the forerunner, was the one that everybody has to meet their John the Baptist before they can step into that mind. And they called John the Baptist the raving maniac in the desert, and the desert is a code word for the unconscious. He's the one that could reach into people's minds and bring up with that which they desperately wanted to avoid, and all of the insanity of the world, all of the drugs, all of the drunks, all of the alcohol, all of the pain, all of the wars, all of the fighting are all an effort to keep from looking at something inside of ourselves. And so being willing to open that gift, to be able to open that space. And John the Baptist is the one who would bring it up for people, the forerunner. Because until somebody deals with those unconscious dynamics, the full-blown mind of love cannot function through them. The unconscious dynamics tend to take over. And so, you know, you look at that story of John the Baptist where he goes to the king and queen and there's something that they're in blockage of truth about. They don't want to look. They don't want to know. Don't tell me. Don't make me look. And he makes them look. When someone delivers truth to those who are in blockage of truth, their stress goes up. And what happens is most people, when their stress goes up, they have their stress wired to getting rid of the source of the information. So there's John the Baptist. He delivers truth to the king and queen, and they literally cut off his head. Yeshua, you know, there's a black ops story that says he died for our sins. It's a lie. It's a black ops cover story. He died because he brought so much stress by bringing such a powerful presence of truth to the power structure of the day. The stress went up to the point where they had to get rid of him. Now, there's a way that on an individual and collective level, we can rewire our minds if we understand the principle. And that is that when somebody, if I'm in blockage of truth and somebody delivers truth to me, instead of wire, having my mind wired in a way where I use I, I, I become addicted to managing the stress of truth showing up by getting rid of the source of the truth. I can rewire myself with the right tools to where if my stress comes up because I've been in blockage of truth and truth shows up, I get to heal. I wire that into the healing of my mind. It's, it's awesome. And, of course, if one chooses to play John the Baptist, there are two important skills to develop, which I um, – continuously work on developing as I'm sure you do Tim when you bring something up in people's faces that they really don't want to look at and that is knowing when to duck and when to hold the mirror up and so we're here to teach all of those skills so that anybody and everybody in earshot of this radio show or who chooses to pick up the work has the skill of knowing how to be John the Baptist and knowing of course when to duck and when to hold the mirror up so that gentle support can be there to hold people accountable to heal and to understand the tools and to move forward in the world as love rather than out of hostility or fear. But the games that, uh, that the mind will play to avoid that are amazing. And, you know, it was this monk series, six year series was a pretty interesting metaphor for all the things that he would do to avoid looking at the gift, to avoid the very thing that would bring him the result that he wanted and so we invite everyone to step into willingness, to be willing to open and totally eradicate all unconscious dynamics within and to stand fully awake and aware as a true human being rather than brainwashed by a culture that takes advantage of our hostilities and fears by purposely setting up scenarios to keep those things moving and to keep us in unconsciousness. And of course, when somebody doesn't want to be conscious, that calls forward somebody who wants to help them stay unconscious and it becomes a cooperative game. And each person who chooses to be uh, responsible and accountable then has the opportunity to step out of that game and create a new game. And we're here. We're in town to, 
to to play and to teach a new game, and the new game of conscious creation as true human beings. So thank you for your uh, your thoughts that kind of got that moving for me. And I hadn't quite seen the that that, that last scene la- that we just watched this last night with the ending of Monk of you know him. I hadn't quite thought of it. As, oh, there's the gift that he didn't want to open his own unconscious dynamic that was holding what what was the key to his internal dilemma and he spent all these years searching for it in the outer world and that's what most people do so it's a good metaphor thanks for rewire helping me to rewire it it's a good one so there are my thoughts and uh any any other thoughts for you tim is that stimulating well, in the monk in the monk um episode you were watching when he right. read that thing from his wife or saw the video and got the answers, did he come out more relaxed and less obsessive-compulsive? Well, the end result, with a little help from his friends, was he did, yes. But actually, he went into a murderous rage, which, you know, we've watched this for, for a six-year series, and he's always been this very gentle, quiet, reserved OCD kind of guy and all of a sudden this opens his rage big time and he has friends around him that hold him accountable that hold him back and you know and the end result is he ends up um, yes in that space of you know in the past he couldn't go out by himself he had to basically almost have a caretaker with him and he's able to go out and he's able to drive and you know I mean everything in his life changes yes yeah that's exactly what happened well, so very powerful metaphor for the whole game of healing. <laughs> yeah, and that reminds me of um, a listserv I've been reading recently. It's a, a type of therapy which is focused on um, doing something that's, you know, as powerful as the reality management forgiveness process, where there are these instantaneous, deep changes that happen, and they're. They've labeled it memory reconsolidation. And so there were, in this discussion group, somebody said, well, have you read this story by Ernest Hemingway where he basically has his character go through a memory reconsolidation process or opening Pandora's box from his past and doing the comparison and having the immediate deep transformation. And so it opened up a discussion about are there other places in literature that describe this process without, of course, having that vocabulary or without having the reality management worksheet process vocabulary. So the fact that it's happened for thousands of years and it's been known on this planet for people who are expert observers and willing to honestly observe rather than cling to a belief system means it's out there. It's what's been happening. It's the way we've always functioned. It's as you say, you know, the Greeks talk about Pandora's box because if somebody opens up Pandora's box and cleans it out, they can't be controlled. You know, if somebody drops their bag of garbage and takes full responsibility for their garbage when it gets stepped on, they aren't driven by guilt and fear and shame and condemnation. They have the liberty to choose differently in each moment and construct an entirely different type of life that is not at the whim of the kings, as you say. So, interesting that you would bring Monk up, because just last night I was reading about this Hemingway story and the process of immediate transformation that happened in his character. And so, and it doesn't happen without awareness. There's There's the big key. And if you look at Everything that, you know, if you were to take our whole culture and everything that we would call untoward behavior, it's all an attempt to avoid opening that package, opening and looking. And it uh, it brings up, a, you know, I've shared this one before, but another quote from Carl Jung, who just had such deep insight to these processes. But he says this, there is no coming to consciousness without pain. People will do anything no matter how absurd to avoid facing their own soul. And that's the, you know, finding the balance between confronting people and having them face their own soul, 
and and being able to set the game up in a way that it's done in a in a balanced way that people can actually work through it becomes a big key to the whole process. And then in that same quote, Jung goes on to say, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And the, the challenge of getting people to look at the darkness, the absurd things that are done is, uh, is sometimes quite a, quite an interesting challenge. And, um, and many people, especially those who aren't acquainted with the tools and don't understand, don't don't go there. Don't make me look. I just want to be a positive thinker and make everything look cool. Not how the healing process works, for sure. Well, what do you say we ask Jeannie to uh, to check on what's happening with uh, with the phone queue? Let's do or it with uh, the chat room, Jeannie. Yeah, chat room's quiet, but we do have a hand up in the well, – actually, we have three hands up in the switchboard. But Shelly, I awesome. think this is him, 207. You're on the air. Hello. Hey there, young man. Hello. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. How do you be? Thank What's God. exciting? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. i got a lot of things going on and a lot of uh, uplifting things are fixing to happen in my life that I'm so excited about that – I guess the manifestation gate is wide open for me. Wonderful. And, uh, but I've got some, I've, um, my gratitude is uh, a little off the scale, and I'm trying to reel it back in because I'm, it's just overwhelming the gratitude that I'm having for everything happening in my life. And the uh, Oh, go for it. I tr- Don't reel in the gratitude. Tr- Let it run. And I, I tell you what, I, I've, I, I've had so much gratitude in my life for the last four days that I can't even sleep at night because I'm, I'm, I'm up walking around on the river walk at three o'clock in the morning saying, thank you, God, for all of this. You know, it's just thank you, thank mm. you, thank you. And, and and I read a passage the other day that said, if God's trying to keep you awake, there's a reason he's trying to keep you awake to talk to you because that's the only time he gets. So I give it to mm. him. And um, and I've got my truth, I feel like my truth meter, as you said on my, evalu- my last evaluation, has just gone through the roof. And I have a question about the commitment. Yes. I was speaking with Gail a couple of days ago. We was having a little nice little conversation, and um, right, it, it was part of it was about you. And she said that in the commitment, it says, "I love you enough to tell you the truth." But that for me is a contradiction in itself because I can't love you and you can't love me. So how can I love you enough to tell you the truth? Well, well, actually, that's not what the commitment says. The commitment says, I trust you enough to tell you the truth. Hmm, okay. You know what? That's probably one that I rewrote for somebody else. Okay, yeah, I trust you enough to tell you the truth. So so I'm going to stand in the space of connectedness and know that if I can hold the space of love and I put the truth out – and and it may be just my truth, but if I trust enough to put it out there and it's not the truth, when I can fully acknowledge it and bring it forward, then in the space of love, I get to heal what needs to be healed in what appears to be my truth that perhaps isn't really true. So, But it's about trusting enough. Yeah, there's nothing in that commitment about loving each other. It's, it's my okay. commitment is to be the space of love and in that case, trust enough to tell the truth. Okay, I'm gonna have to go back and reread that. I guess. Okay, thank yeah, you for that. Cool. And my Find other, the website. And my other thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've got one. I've got. So I've written several of them to several people. I've been reading one for four months, and I don't seem to be getting anything awesome. out of it. So I think I'm gonna take it. I think I'm gonna take it. Take my boat out, put it in a metal treasure chest, and throw it in the ocean, and be done with uh-huh, it. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, just just get rid of it. And then my other question. My I I don't know if this is a question or a statement, but you know I've um. Every day I get my um, things from Tao and Gandhi and the Buddha and Mother Teresa, and it just, it just gives me inspiration to live my life on the same accords that they do. And, and right. I, and, and, I, and you and I kind of talked about it the other day, and I, yes. I feel that if, if I'm living in a higher consciousness than any of the things in the world, just like Yeshua, he wouldn't be concerned with any of the local politics or any of that stuff or any of the GMO. He wouldn't be concerned with anything but his own self and his own spirituality and, and linking himself to the, to the higher powers to be. 
So well, that's I an guess. interesting thought, but it's not true. No. That's an interesting okay. thought. Well, look at him. Look at look at his social commentary. Look at how. In his day, you know, there were people who were controlling others. And in one case, he, he, he tells them the truth of, hey, you guys, you're living in a world that isn't the true world. And the source of your ideas comes from lies. And he holds the, the power structure accountable. And that's why they killed him. Because he was holding them accountable and exposing their unconscious motives and unconscious dynamics to themselves, which, once again, stress goes up for people. Okay. So, okay. you know, there's, there's also there's an old Middle Eastern saying that says, trust in Allah and tie your camel. You know, I, I could say, you know, I choose to believe that the world is going to be totally honest, so I'm going to take this $100 bill and I'm going to tack it down here on this pole on the corner of Main Street uh, at eye level. And I'm going to trust that when I come back in a week, it's going to be there. Well, you know, the truth is it's probably not going to be there when you come back. Now, maybe you could be in a powerful enough, clear enough space to hold the space that that would be surrounded in light and it would be there when you got back. But, you know, it's probably not going to happen. And so I think that that if we choose, once again, if I don't ever look at my own unconscious dynamics, I can never correct my unconscious dynamics. And so to have, and it doesn't have to be fear about what's going on in the world, but to show concern for what's going on in the world and to if if you're aware of something that most people aren't aware of it's not a popular thing to do but to bring awareness forward to that issue so that those who are co-creating it through unconsciousness can get conscious and bring change to it, to me, is important. And, and of course, the, the, the thing you didn't say was that our, our conversation the other day was about some of the Facebook posts that I do where I'm fairly confrontive with the insanity that's going on in the world. And saying, you know, I mean, one of the posts I do pretty regularly is we need to get rid of police in our society and we need to start to to hire and train peace officers to go back to a different space. Now, most people are shocked when they hear such a thought because they're so steeped in a culture that says, well, you know, we just all have to be policed. There's the thin blue line and we're on the other side of it and blah, blah, blah. Well, that's just not true. But if people in mass, and especially people in the power structure who, who don't understand there's a difference, who've bought into, gee, what would our world be like if we had peace officers, people who were trained in you know, the whole conversation we're having here, and that there's a situation that they're called into? Yes, they've got a gun on their hip, but that's their, their last resort rather than their first resort. What would it be like if we had people who were trained in these tools who, when they walk into a community situation, who walk into a, uh, a, um, a, a conflict inside of a home, are able to soften, bring the presence of love, and healing there? How different would our culture be? People can't even conceive of that in the unconsciousness of this culture of violence, the, most people. So I choose to take responsibility and bring that forward to people's attention on a regular basis. Look, folks, we need to wake up. We need to start to do this differently because if you look at the dynamic of the culture, sadly enough, there's a large segment of this culture that's waking up, but there's also a very large segment that's moving into deeper and deeper and deeper police state tactics. And we don't need another police state on the planet. We need an awakened state of people who, yes, do we need support and communities, uh, people who support our communities living in true humanness until we all awaken to that humanness? Absolutely. But it's not going to happen in mass until the mass becomes aware of it. So that's why I post some of those things on Facebook, and I do it regularly. I do it consciously. I do it very purposely. Okay. Does that so, make sense? Uh, if we had, yeah, if we had that, we'd be back in Mayberry. Yeah. With Andy and, and we could be. We could be. But, but in order to be, we're going to have to get the guy on, the, on each end of the gun to start to wake up. 
And the people on each end of the gun don't wake up until they get a tap on the shoulder that says, gee, you know, what you're doing is a little unconscious here. Maybe you should wake up. And, and when me. we wake up. Go ahead. Go ahead. It wasn't, I think it was you that told me in the intensive that, that if we had faith, then we could walk through a battlefield with 10,000 10, dead and we would walk through it unscathed. Was that you that told me that? Correct. That's, that's actually a scriptural promise, that if you're in resonance with love, with the creator, then you could walk through the battlefield and you'd be shielded. Yes. So my, inter- my interpretation of that is none of this earthly crap matters to me because I'm walking through that space of love and nothing can, can attack me. And you were talking about uh, Michael the other day, how he would go into neighborhoods and look for fights with people. And me, on the other hand, I walk through those neighborhoods and they invite me in for dinner and, yep, and, I and offer to help me fix my car. So really, none of the right. stuff with Trump and Hillary and none of that stuff really matters. And Yeshua, I think, even said that it doesn't matter what you put into your body; it's what comes out. Because you can you can eat the wrongest things in the world, and it will automatically. If God is on that with you, if you're in the in that space, it doesn't matter. So I, what I'm trying to understand is how does any of that matter to us if we're elevated to a higher level? Because God is. Here's, and, here's and, where it and matters. Buddha. Okay. Here's where it matters. There are 300 million of us. And if you look at the way policing in our community is going, by and large, it comes from a place of violence. And, yes, you may be able to walk through the neighborhood because you've done your work. But if your granddaughter hasn't done her work, can she walk through the neighborhood? I want the neighborhood to be safe. Even if my granddaughter is unconscious and hasn't done that work, I want the neighborhood to be safe for her to walk through. And so when we can hit, you know, as a, as a country of 300, what I think 365 million people, when we can hit a critical mass of people, then we are going to create a community that is safe for everyone. But until we hit that community, that critical mass there's going to be things happen like we've seen happen in the last several days. Now, everybody who gets involved in that, do they have a part in it? Have they got a responsibility in it? Yes. But by and large, that uh, responsibility is unconscious. And for me, you know, where I sit, what I see is that those who are conscious have the responsibility to do what it takes to bring the game forward for everybody, not just sit and say, well, I, I can be safe here, so it's okay with me. I know I've, I've done that. I've, I can remember the first time I w- went to Chicago and people said, hey, be careful. You go into the wrong neighborhood and you'll never come back out again. Well, I got into one of those wrong neighborhoods. And actually, I was driving through it, and I'm three different times I had people stop me and say, hey, buddy, you're obviously in the wrong neighborhood. Here's how you go to get out. And I got support. So I understand what you're saying, but that's not true for a lot of people. And, and to me, I choose to take the responsibility for shifting and assisting the whole game to change for everybody. Now, isn't that setting goals for other people? No, no. That's, holding, no, that's the difference between holding people accountable and blaming people. I'm here to hold the space. Otherwise, you know, and Jeannie, maybe you could mute until we complete because there's a lot of noise coming from Shelly's phone. Yeah, sorry. I'm I think it's Shelly's phone. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, it's my car so drive. Maybe you could just mute. Maybe you could just mute until you have something to say. So, so the difference is that we could, we could say, well, you know, we've got this little cadre of people who've hit the mountaintop, so we'll just go off and we'll live on the mountaintop and let everybody else slaughter themselves. And, you know, that certainly would be one approach. My take is, and my inclination, and my purpose, and I'm not suggesting it's anybody else's purpose, but my purpose is to go into the fray, hold the space, and keep bringing forward accountability, and keep sharing the tools freely so that everybody on the planet has access to the tools so that we can get back to a world where we live as human beings. 
And to me, that's one of the most worthy purposes that could possibly be for me. Now, it doesn't mean that would be a worthy purpose for anybody else, but it's one that's worthy for me. And anybody that sees that as something that they are in harmony with and go, yes, well, tell you what. I've spent 50 years, you know, taking the ice cutter through the, the frozen waste of the unconscious mind and develop tools for helping to keep opening it. Hey, you want to get on board? You want to help with that ice cutter? You want to help to deliver the tools to people who don't have a clue that there's anything going on, let alone how to do anything about it? Then jump on board, support us, and assist us in doing it. And if I remember correctly, I know the first intensive you were at, you were talking about how you really strongly knew that you needed to take these tools to Israel and Palestine and start to create healing there. So I think you're in the same path there. Um, and, you know, everybody's got to do the purpose that they hold true for themselves. Let's, uh, let's see if Dr. Tim has any, any thoughts in this conversation. It's, uh, it's a pretty deep issue on the planet right now, especially in the context of what's happened in just the last few days, what happened in Dallas and uh, with these young black men. I mean, this, this whole insanity uh, is just it's time for wake up. And people don't wake up unless they're confronted. That's my experience. And otherwise, the thing that wakes them up is they go into the depths of such pain that oftentimes the disease processes they've gotten themselves into financially, physically, mentally, and emotionally are so far gone that by the time the pain breaks through their unconscious defenses, it's too late. And I've watched people who, who you know, at the last minute, in fact, you were at some workshops in South Florida, the week of workshops we did do in South Florida, and there was a young woman there who did some of this work back six or seven years ago and kind of let it go. You know, she was with it for maybe six months and then let it go and went on. And, and, and then she came, she was at the workshop every night. In fact, you were there to support her very powerfully. But she was dealing with such a... Um, a deep stage cancer that even though she even though she wanted to break through to it she couldn't it was too late for her and she actually passed away just a couple of weeks ago so so to me you know if if I'd had more contact with her I'd have been confronting her more often with well, you know, I hear you talking about that, but you know, you got some work to do around that one. And if over that six years, she'd had somebody who had that conversation going on with her, I think she'd still be alive and well, and cancer would not have eaten her up. So it's it's a matter of, you know, again, finding the balance between the the confronting of the issues and the exposing of the issues that we need to look at, especially the, the in, ma in mass issues, and then providing people with the support and the space and the tools for working through those so that they can be restored to that presence of love and, and do it in a, a genuine and sensible way. Dr. Tim? Well, uh, the brain cells that were firing for me were when Shelley was saying, you know, if I was completely enlightened, then I could put any food I wanted in my body and I wouldn't be worried about this and that. And what what strikes me, you know, several different things came to mind. Um, historically, there have been people who absolutely held zero belief for the poison that was in a vial and they picked up the vial and threw it down, and they didn't have any effects of the poison. There's a story of a person who was taught a um, hypnosis, mind-body energy technique, and he applied it to somebody who had a skin rash, and the skin rash went away. I mean, just magically went away. And then one of his colleagues, or several of his colleagues, came to him and said, you have got to teach us what you did. You just cured this absolutely incurable you know, fatal disease in this person. And and then he was told it was an incurable fatal disease and he lost all of his ability to affect change. And And of course, you know, so if I am completely clear, if I am able to hold the space of love without any reservation, Michael read something from Course in Miracles 
Say only this, but say it with complete conviction, without any reservation. Well, if I'm able to do that, then then I can walk through the battlefield and I can eat whatever. However, if I'm not there yet and I pretend I'm there, I'm in worse shape than the novice who starts out and says I need to begin at step one. So for me to pretend <clears throat> that all I have to do is think about visions of light, as Jung would say, or to hold the image of a newborn child, and I've only been introduced to this work for two or three years, and then I'm going to walk into the worst situation ever and just keep thinking about a newborn child and expect everything to work out beautifully, I'm probably going to have all kinds of my garbage resonated in that situation because I haven't done what Jung said. You don't become enlightened by envisioning images of light. You bring the darkness within you to the light. And as the Thomas Gospels have a line where it says, if you bring in you, if you bring out what is within you, what is within you will heal you, will save you. If you don't bring out what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. It's the same message. It's thousands of years old. If I pretend I'm farther along on the path than I actually am, that's the most important thing in any moment is for me to be able to accurately see where am I and how am I creating the pain I'm feeling. So those were the brain cells resonated for me. So does that cross the bridge for you, Shelley? Does that uh, address the issue? Yes, yeah, it does. It, go, it takes me back to when you said that people are going to have poor reactions when you uh, start doing this work. And I think the people that uh, I am personally interested in focusing on are the ones that are coming to me and saying, I want what you have. Yep. I hear you. Those are the ones that... Yeah. I, I, just, I, just got a, uh, I just got an invitation to go back to Bethlehem with some people that I met there, and they've opened their home up to me and said, we want you to come stay with us. This is like a week ago they, they called me and said, we want you to come stay with us. And they were the ones that were that, that we were told not to talk to while we were there. And um, they were just they were just shrouding me and Stacy with gifts. They just kept throwing these gifts at me and saying, this is for you, this is for you. No, don't pay me for it. This is for these were street vendors. And this is for you. I was told to give this to you. I was told to give this to you with all the the sacred things that happened while we were over there. And, um, I, and, um, I, I think this, the work that you've given me to do, along with everything else that has manifested into my life since I met you, has really pushed me over the pinnacle to where I know I have to go and I know what I've got to do now. Cool. Awesome. Just, just doing our job. Yeah, just doing our job. Our job, man. That's yeah. it. That's it. Thank you, Dr. Tim, for that, that. Thank you, Dr. Tim. So, I'll be. Uh, I might be moving to Chicago next week. So, maybe I can connect uh-huh. with some of Dr. Groups. Awesome. So, yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, we're down to the last... Well, we appreciate the questions. That that always keeps the energy moving. And we're down to just the last few seconds, so I'm just going to say thank you for the conversations. Thank you for passing the tools on. Support it in every way you can, whether it's sharing a worksheet with somebody, walking somebody through the process, or just living the tools. And if you want to take it to the next level, of course, if you want to support us, there's a donate button on our website. Intensives are coming up. If you're ready to take your work to the next level, come and join us. A nine-day wise is happening to me again, and a 16-day uh, laws of living that we'll be doing this summer. In the meantime, we hold the space for you to create the best year yet of your eternal life. It is an awesome gift to give the Thank you for listening to MindShifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice, and myself, Jeannie Rice, as we present the Internal Aramaic Process of Forgiveness. 
We are here every Monday through Friday from 1 to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Earth Angels Radio. For more on Michael, myself, or Aramaic Forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.